Our sermon this evening is certainly going to touch on the hope that is only in the Lord, the hope that we have concerning forgiveness. And in relation to that, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 18. Sometimes if you hear a chapter of the Bible named, you might immediately associate certain things with that chapter. So I could say, for instance, John 3, Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, Romans chapter 8. Now, maybe those mean a lot to you or maybe you're still learning some of these things. When I hear Matthew 18, for a variety of reasons, the first thing that comes to my mind, perhaps because of my seminary training, my serving as an officer, Matthew 18 to me is church discipline. That's the chapter that tells us the process of holding other believers accountable. But in preparing for this sermon, I was reminded that's not everything in Matthew 18. It's also the chapter of forgiveness. And church discipline is designed not as an end to drive people away, but even in our church order, it's called the extreme remedy. Remedy, the desire is to see people restored to a right relationship with God and with other believers. And so this evening we're going to be thinking about a parable and the Lord is going to be working in you from a parable that is all about forgiveness, both in terms of what God grants, but also in terms of what he requires of his servants. Now there's a certain situation that prompted this parable and we don't have time to go through all of that background here and to look at all the places Jesus is talking about forgiveness in the Gospels, but I want you to just have this idea in mind. Prior to this parable, Jesus has been teaching about forgiveness, and the apostles, or rather at this point the disciples, have picked up on the fact that this is one of the very important points of his message. They've realized this is very important. But on the other hand, they're in a process of learning, and they're asking questions to make sure that they understand correctly. And Peter asks the Lord a clarifying question. He asks him, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So is there a limit on this? Peter may have been familiar with a rabbinical teaching, records of which have come down to this very day, which predate what Jesus is going to say. This rabbinical teaching taught that if your brother sins against you and asks for forgiveness, you are to forgive him at least three times. But on the fourth time, you are allowed to retaliate. Now, Peter seems to be making a fairly astute compromise on that kind of idea. Because he's being very generous by comparison to that standard. Not even double, one more on top of double. Seven, it's a nice theologically round number. It's complete. And then you can feel like my duty is complete. But on the other hand, I think... Most of us have had this thought, if you give out too much forgiveness, people are going to take advantage of it. And so we have to put a limit on it. You have to draw a line somewhere, and since we can't, you know, every situation is different, let's just make a policy. Here's the policy, seven, and then we're done. But Jesus says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, other translations have that as 70 times 7. But as one person said it, Jesus' point here is clearly not to give you an arithmetic lesson. It doesn't matter for our purposes which way the translation goes. 
What does matter is he's clearly speaking in a hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He's making a huge number to say, you shouldn't be counting. There should not be a, a number kept. Rather, it should be an uncalculated kind of forgiveness that characterizes the people of God, that characterizes the kingdom. And it's at this point, with all of that in view, that Jesus is going to illustrate this. Beginning at verse 23, here together with me the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. O oh Lord God, we thank you that when we meet you in the word, you are never playing with us. This is the stuff of life, the hard things that we confront every day. We thank you that you have spoken candidly with us, both of your grace and of our need to be gracious. Our Lord, we ask that you would please Make us receptive. Give the things that you command of us, Lord. Form in us the heart that you desire. We ask this in Christ's name, trusting that he is our yes and our amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The purpose of this parable is very straightforward. Jesus was teaching his disciples and the Holy Spirit is laying before us tonight that the measure which we use in how we show mercy is the measure which we ought to expect will be meted to us. That's heavy. Now, we never rise to the perfection of God. But there is an analogy, there is a comparison that does exist, that is real between the character of believers and God. When we look in the world and when we look at the church, there should be a marked distinction there is reality in the Christian life. And here we are being told both about the character of the forgiveness, the mercy that God grants his servants, 
when he settles accounts with them, but also of the requirement that sits upon you and I as servants in this kingdom. So as we examine this parable, we're going to look at it in those same two stages. First, to look at the character of the mercy that is measured to us, but then also at the requirement to mete out a similar and analogous mercy. First, look with me at the measure of God's mercy toward his servants in this passage, because this is a parable that describes realities of the kingdom. Remember again what a parable is. You children, I wonder if you remember from several weeks ago, it's been some weeks and now we're back in the parables, what a parable is. It's a story, but it's more than a story. It's a story designed by God both to hide and to reveal things about his spiritual kingdom. And so if we are attentive, the Lord will reveal things to us here, and we need to dig into some of the details of the story to build them out so we don't miss some of the important facts here. In the first place, the servant, the main character, think about what kind of person he is. He is no lowly slave. That's evident in the fact in the first place that he has access to the king. He comes into the very presence of the king. And his debt suggests that he has been entrusted with a huge amount of responsibility. This is not just someone low. This is somebody with great privileges. Now, how much does he owe? Our text says 10,000 talents. What is a talent? In the ancient world, it was a unit of measurement that was based on weight, typically gold or silver. And... While it varied over time, a rough estimate is 20 years worth of an average wage is one talent. 20 years of an average wage. So take whatever your annual wage is, multiply it by 20. Imagine owing someone that. In what position would you be in to pay that back? Now, multiply that by 10,000. 20,000 lifetimes of, or however many years, however you calculate this, it's an immense debt. How could anyone owe that? And commentators have at times tried to figure out what was, how did he contract this immense debt? Maybe he was a tax farmer. He bid to the government that he would bring in this. I don't think that's Jesus' point at all. A parable is not in every sense allegorical where every detail means something. The point he's laying on you in the first place is just the sheer weight of it. It's meant to feel absurd. There's no paying back this debt. And in the first place, this is meant to bring before you the reality of your situation. As a servant of the king, do you feel yourself to be indebted to God, to whom you must give a final account? On the one hand, for the good things that you've been entrusted with, Just your job as a servant is a great privilege. That you are created in the image of God. In a manner of speaking, I speak as a fool, but in a manner of speaking, he could have created you as a rock and spared you any kind of sentient existence. He didn't. He could have made you as a dog or a cat. And I don't know for sure, but it seems from Scripture, I don't see anything to suggest that they have immortal souls. They're here and then they're gone. He didn't. He made you a human being, able to commune with the living God, able to serve him, able to delight in innumerable good things. 
Which one of us at one time or another has not stood outside and loved the warmth of the sun and the light that it gives, the way that it comes through the trees, the variegations of green color all around us, not your idea, out of your power, purely a gift. Which one of us have not at one time or another held the hands of a little child and thought, how beautiful is life that God has given to us? Which one of us have not appreciated, to whatever extent we're healthy, that we can function? Which one of us has not at one time or another seen someone who is deeply mentally ill and not thought to ourselves, I can't control my own mental health and not been grateful? Which one of us brought ourselves into this Christian calling and kingdom and appointed ourselves to herald the gospel and to be agents of everlasting life? We are all creatures indebted to this goodness that we have received. But then on the other hand, there is all the fact that we have misused and abused everything entrusted to us. The same light which shines upon us and is beautiful, we turn into a tool of evil to bask on that which is wicked. Do we not use our hands to harm people or to steal? One of my earliest memories, a four-year-old child was stealing from a grocery store. No one had to tell me anything about how to do that or put me up to it. Every one of us has a debt which Jesus is telling you, according to this parable, is to be thought about as utterly unpayable because it's owed to the infinite majesty of God. And who is more in debt than we who are believers because we know and understand clearly the gifts that we have received in grace and who the Lord is. Now, what does this servant do when he realizes his debt? He does something that's very natural. It's our instinct as well. It says he falls down on his knees and he begs for more time to pay it back. That's our instinct too. The first, the fleshly instinct is not to cast ourselves purely on grace. It's to want leniency, to want a refinancing of the debt. Lord, set up new terms. I'll try to pay it back. I'll try to be a better person. From this day forward, I'll commit myself better to you. And the Lord in this parable shows us something entirely different. The economy of grace in the kingdom is one where the king of kings simply says to his servant, you are free. It says he had pity on the servant. Not that he's, well, I've got so money, I don't need it, so just go. He had pity upon a person who squandered an immeasurable fortune. He had pity and says he pardoned him and released him. And the Lord wishes you to see that that is the promise of the gospel held out, that on that day when you come to give an account, those servants who have sought mercy on the basis of grace will hear, there is no debt. In fact, whatever good you did, I received through the blood of Christ. And I formed it in you. This is the character of the mercy that is measured out to servants in the gospel So you have to ask yourself in the first place several questions. Do you see yourself as a servant of the king? There is no forgiveness outside of this. Parable presents no other alternative. Nowhere you can go. Every one of us as a creature must deal with the fact that we are contingent beings. Have we received it with gratitude? Will we receive grace freely? Hear the words of Psalm 130. We, in fact... Confess these words this morning. Psalm 130, verse 3, declares, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, 
Oh, Lord, who could stand? That is, if the Lord tallied up sins, none of us would get out of here. We'd all be dead. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In verse 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Though it applies to everyone, permit me to speak a little bit more directly to the young adults here. You're at a stage of your life where you are coming to grips in some ways with the reality of your faith, whether or not it is yours or simply an inheritance, culturally or otherwise. And in all probability, though I wish not to impose this or push a narrative on any one of you as individuals, with a group of this size in this church, there will be those who, of course, make some very poor decisions and greatly regret it. I can say that from my own experience, I had times in my early 20s where I was wrestling with the promises of the gospel that are so good and the calling that is so high, and then my life, and saying, how can I possibly be a believer? How can I possibly be accepted? How do I go forward based on how I've fallen? Again! Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. There is plenteous redemption. What's the alternative? The only chance you have as you sob your face into a pillow is to believe he must be more generous than I thought because it's not an alternative to turn away. Your only choice every day is there must be more grace than I thought so that he may be feared. Not so that I may continue in sin, but so that this day, and it's the only day you live in, you don't live in tomorrow, leave it alone. This day, I will turn and sin no more. Wash, rinse, repeat. This is the character of the grace that God wants us to look at, wants us to receive in the gospel. This is the measure of mercy that was purchased for us at the cross. Christ didn't suffer, you know, X minus Y, and X is this knowledge of your total debt, and Y is this part that you are going to have to do yourself. He's complete. God took on your nature and suffered fully so that you wouldn't need to do a thing to receive reconciliation. He's satisfied. Receive it. Hear the words. Believe them afresh. You are pardoned. You are released. But this parable does more than that. It shows us a requirement. And the requirement, we have to be careful. The requirement is not here to say that it's the condition by which you merit God's forgiveness. That's not the purpose of this parable. He's driving home the expectation that there will be a transformation in believers. This is the requirement for our own forgiveness, our second and final main heading here. Look with me back at the story. We're going to look at several details here. What follows the forgiveness of the servant here? After the servant is forgiven, what happens? He leaves, he goes out, and I can only imagine what he felt like. I know that some of you had large debts at one point, and then you were done with your debt, and I know that some of you specifically had celebrations of being out of debt for comparably small debts. When we think about this person owing, you know, again, a talent, 
20 years of wages times 10,000. It's a lot. What kind of joy you think this person would be skipping, not even skipping, like floating across the air in delight. But the parable tells us this person crosses paths with another servant, one of his peers. We don't know if he went and sought out the person. We don't know if they just came across one another. But this is someone who he believes, or maybe really does, owe him the equivalent in our money of three months of wages. Three months of wages, again, however much you make. I know that some of our high schoolers here have jobs. Three months of wages. So this may be anywhere in our money from $5,000 to $50,000. There's a spectrum of wages. But for wherever you're at, you can't deny that it's a substantial amount of money. And perhaps that partly explains why he is angry. But nothing explains the extreme wrath. He immediately is strangling this person. Wants a person thrown in jail. And the person's pleading, pleading, please, let me repay. Let me do anything. And he says, no, put him in jail. And in jail, that person won't be able to pay back anything. And so it's functionally to put that person forever into lockup. And this is where it begins to become perhaps uncomfortable when we appreciate that it's not just a story, it's a parable of the kingdom. Jesus isn't just talking about how people in the world behave. He's talking about the kingdom. The kingdom comes in two stages. In this present life, the kingdom is composed of many who profess to know him and yet by their lives deny him. In the age to come, it will be purified of all who did not truly know him. And here there are those who have sat under the gospel. They've heard these things. And yet immediately they go out and they cross. And inevitably you will cross paths. You've already crossed paths with people who do you wrong. You will struggle with things others do. And you will feel that they are in debt to you. They owe you a debt of gratitude. They owe you a debt of justice. They owe you actual debts of money. Or other things that you simply say they cannot repay it. They will not repay it. And the person in this parable has no place for graciousness. Now I want to make very clear what in this context forgiveness is and is not. Forgiveness in the most broad sense is a releasing from something that is owed. And sometimes you hear about student loan forgiveness. And there it simply in that context means to no longer require the obligation of repayment for something. And here you see that kind of financial language being applied for the sake of the parable. Of course, the point of the parable is not to say that Christians can in no setting ever receive payment for something owed to them. That all your goods and services should be free. No, of course not. That is not what he's driving at. Nor is he saying by forgiveness here that you have to automatically or ever trust people who sin in the same way as you did before. His point is not to say, for instance, governments as governments are not allowed to enforce consequences upon people even if they cry out for mercy. Romans chapter 13 still holds. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Romans 13 says that the magistrate does not hold the sword in vain. Here, the focus is not about having a good opinion of somebody. It's about having goodwill towards them. 
And particularly, the parable is about how servants in the kingdom relate to one another. It does have implications outside of this, but this is the immediate focus. How will the servants of the kingdom, how will fellow believers relate to one another? Will you withhold your goodwill? And that's a challenge because all of us at different times will be confronted with occasions where we just feel, no, that was the eighth. Seven times I will forgive, but this is the eighth, no more. I am so angry at them. And we can tell ourselves one thing or another, but you have to ask yourself this question. Would you rejoice for God to be gracious to that person? Would you desire that God would give as much goodness to them and as many blessings as he wills? If you begrudge grace, then you have a grudge that is exactly the issue in this. And it's not enough to say that as a platitude, because if you can't contain with a brother or sister over a period of time any sense of relationship or fellowship, any union in Christ bringing fruit, you have to ask yourself, how is the Holy Spirit at work here? The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness. And so you can speak hypothetically, but where there is hate, how can there be the love of God? That's what it says in 1 John. Now, the servants report the actions to the king, and it says that they were greatly distressed. Other translations, they were very angry. And there have been discussions, is this representing the church? Is it representing angels? I'm not sure, but I think this much is safe to say. As fellow servants of the king, we should not be indifferent when others who profess to be Christians do not practice forgiveness with one another. We're not indifferent to that. In fact, we begin to intercede and to speak to the Lord about it, to ask the Lord to work in it. And this comes in the same chapter as Matthew chapter 18, where if somebody continues in a sin, there is a process for confronting that sin. This is not a light matter according to Jesus. Look at verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is to say forever. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Does that mean that God is going back on his promise? No, I don't think so. Parables are not systematic theologies. They don't lay everything out in the same clean way that we might want. Rather, the simple point, Jesus is saying, you have no reasonable expectation that on that final day of accounts, you are among those who have been reconciled to God if you don't from the heart forgive your brothers. But that's not because your forgiveness is what's holding your salvation in jeopardy moment by moment. You know that somebody cut you off and you're really angry and at that moment someone else hits you and you die and now you're not saved because in that moment, you know, but 20 minutes earlier you were fine. That's not at all what he's driving at. But he is delivering a very rugged challenge against the idea that you can have a genuine walk with the Lord that does not produce the fruits of the kingdom over time. 
And so the point is not to, you know, turn in on yourself and every single time you have any struggle forgiving to say, well, am I saved? But on the other hand, over time, you must not be comfortable with this sin. Because it's through the wrestling with this sin that I would expect then some have come to true faith. Where they discover that what they thought the Lord gave them was a good bit of forgiveness, but not the unlimited, uncalculated graciousness that is the gospel. And it was in wrestling with this sin that they discovered that they were using a legalistic standard upon others that they would never want upon themselves. And then they are forced to receive from the Lord an infinite standard of forgiveness. And so there's a requirement here. I want to bring before you finally then just two questions. Same two that we touched on, but I want you to consider them. First, do you see yourself as a servant of the king? And at this point, I have not asked whether you're a good servant. We've established that we are all unworthy servants. But do you see yourself as a servant of the king? Do you recognize that you have this responsibility to invest what he has given to you? If you do not see yourself as a servant to the kings and as a minister of the word, I declare to you, you stand outside of the kingdom. You still ought to serve him. And he calls you to serve him and he'll receive you if you come. But this gospel of the kingdom belongs to servants only. And not to particularly worthy ones either. We are none of us worthy. But the Lord is calling you to come even as a servant and to throw yourself down on mercy. This week, some of you are going to have to do that again. In one sense or another, all of us must do that every day. Throw yourself down on mercy. And the reality is it's the people who do that and do that again and again who persevere in the Christian faith. Some of those whom we have known seemed for a time to have a reputation for great godliness and they walked for a time and there were no scandals. And then they turned away and they never came back. Others fell hard and they repented and then they fell hard again and they repented and then five years later they fell hard again and they repented and they persevered the book of proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times and yet he gets up again the get up that is in the christian's legs is the gospel it's not oh but i know what i ought to do It's the gospel. That's the get up in the Christian's legs. That's what picks you up again and says, he releases me. He forgives me. But if that's the ethos that brought you to life, why do you think that your grudges are going to do any good to anyone else? It's the gospel that transforms people. So I ask you one last question. Have you been keeping count of others' debts? Bear with me, I don't mean that you trust in the same way those who do evil. Some people, by the very nature of their choices, forfeit a reasonable expectation from society that they'll be allowed to hold certain positions or privileges. I'm not talking about that. Or that you have to have a good opinion of everyone and their judgment, their actions. But it does mean that you have genuine goodwill and you are delighted at the thought of that person being blessed by God. And always. If you don't have that for others or 
Usually it's a particular other or a few particular others. The Holy Spirit tonight is declaring to you the power of the gospel to transform you and the necessity that you seek that transformation. There is the need to release others, but the word tells us also that is a release for us. It's good to be free of the bondage of bitterness. It is bad to be in chains of anger for year upon year. May God help us. May he free us. Let's ask for his blessing now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the revelation of your willingness to grant pardon. We acknowledge before you that we are not worthy. We thank you that both in this life and especially in the age to come, there are so many good things that you have appointed for us. Our Father, we ask that you would please help us to love others in the same way. We ask that as we pray throughout the week, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that you would work in us a renewed sense of gospel-oriented reconciliation. Our Father, we pray that our congregation would be a fair reflection in our city of what it looks like to be in the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.